things like the music, feel free to stop one of these fine people in the atrium and say thank you uh, every once in a while because they spend hours every week preparing uh, and doing so sacrificially and bringing their talents here to serve us. To God be the glory, but we can also show some gratitude for uh, the hours poured in there. So this morning, I've got, uh, as you may have seen on the sign in your bulletin, whatever, the, the topic this morning is patience. And now, for those of you who are not fans of my preaching style, I have the next three sermons. So if you don't like today's sermon, you at least get to apply it for two consecutive weeks after this and, in, and endure my preaching. But the, I, I found it amusing that two of the three weeks coming up, the topics are patience, which is today, and kindness, which is in three weeks. And I would say I'm not known for either of those in particular. Like the minimum required level for being a Christian Patience and kindness. It's the area where I have a lot of room to grow, is the nice way to say it. So, it'll be interesting to see uh, how condemned I am by my own preaching. But, that's always the case. Um, so, as many of you know, we're in our series called Influencer. Uh, and it's going through First and Second Samuel, where we cover the life of Saul. Where now we're getting into David and Saul, they overlap. And uh, this term, Influencer, has taken on a new meaning in our culture. And uh, in fact, there are now websites where you can go to have them grade your score as an influencer. And so what that means is uh, the uh, it's called a clear score, clear spelled with a K because the internet. And um, what they do is they connect to all of your social media, your Instagram, your Facebook, your Twitter, and they say, how many followers do you have? How many people respond to things when you post? And we can grade on a scale of one to a hundred how influential of a person you are. And if you're influential enough, you can get paid to do some of those things. Um, now, you have to pay to find out your score, and I'm cheap, so I didn't do that. Um, but I, I can self-score, and it's moderate to low. Um, but I found it interesting that they define what it means for them to be an influencer. Now, this is a company whose whole job it is is to define influencer and show you where you are on that scale. And their definition of influencer is this, the ability to drive action. It is not about how many followers you have, nor is it about how many engagements you get. The expected number of relevant users that will see and react to your post defines how influential you are, end quote. And so for them, influencer doesn't mean you make a lot of contacts, you look really busy, or you post a lot, or that you post a lot to different things. It's the connection between your ability to do something and it to trigger action for someone else. So your ability to drive action. Now, that's the theme of the series. Is how do we become influencers for Jesus, influencers for Christ, for his kingdom uh, in our world today? And so it may seem strange that today's topic is on patience. Because you may say, well, how could patience ever drive someone to action? How can patience be a catalyst for someone else's action? How can you be an influencer using patience? Which, by the way, for impatient people like me, patience I usually define as the absence of something. It's nothing. It's not doing something. Is uh, Now, it's not always true, but that's how impatient people define it. And so we're going to answer that question. How can patience help you as an influencer... 
But first, I want to take a quick look at what patience and impatience in our culture. And so I'm going to ask you, and you probably already know just by the title of the sermon, what do all of these things have in common? Speed dating. You guys know what speed dating is? You sit at a table across from someone for three minutes and then they hit a bell and you move on and you date someone else for three minutes and then you do that ten times and you've wrapped it all up in an hour and you've gotten to know, gotten to know ten people. And so we found a way to microwave dating, basically. And so it's quick, quick service. You get what you are, came for and you're done uh, very quickly. So speed dating would be one thing. Uh, we have a whole industry in this country called fast food which uh, you may start to see the theme. We also have something called prime shipping. If you're an Amazon member, it means anything in the world that you want can be brought to your house in two days. And if you're willing to pay $9, you can have it the same day, which that's pretty amazing. However, the trend is even... So this is my favorite one. I, I hadn't even heard of this until I was researching this, but uh, have you heard of the one weekend diet? There's a diet that you can subscribe to and it tells you how to lose the weight you want to lose in one weekend. Now, in, in the history of Christianity, I think we call it fasting, but <laughs> they've managed to despiritualize it. So I mean and then there's there's the low grade ones. There's honking when the light turns green. Uh you know, the fact that we even have microwaves, you know, that there used to be this whole process where you would go to, you know, different grocers and you would buy ingredients and then you would make food and then you would have to prepare it and heat it. And now it all comes already made and you just have to microwave it. And have you ever yelled at the microwave for not moving fast enough? Because I have. I've been like, come on! And it's got like the counter there for 20 seconds and then you stop it with like seven seconds left just out of spite. And that's... We might be impatient. And then... This is an interesting study. This is, and I don't know why, Fifth Third Bank did this study, and you're going to figure out why why that's weird in just a second. But here's the headline of it. 96% of Americans are so impatient, they knowingly consume hot food or beverages that burn their mouths. Now, why a bank did that study is beyond me. But 96%, how many of you ever burnt your mouth on food? How many of you were surprised that it had that effect? Only one of us. So, uh, and then the final thing is this, and many of you have probably heard of this before, the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. This was, uh, it's in deferred gratification is the, the theme of the study, but they did this decades ago, and then they followed these kids. So they took young children, I think kindergarten or younger, and they put them all in a room and put a marshmallow in front of them and said, okay, we're going to leave the room. We're going to come back in 15 minutes. Now, you can eat that marshmallow, but if you can wait 15 minutes... Till we come back in, you'll get another marshmallow. So you get two marshmallows. So if you're willing to wait 15 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. Now, uh, you know, I'm not particularly marshmallow motivated, but they did follow these kids, uh, the kids who ate it before the time was up and the kids who got two marshmallows, and they followed them for the next 30 years. And the kids who were willing to wait 15 minutes for an extra marshmallow were determined to have better lives as measured by SAT scores, educational attainment, body mass index, physical health, and other life measures. And so patience, and now what that really tells us here is that patience is a virtue. Here's the problem. If I came in and told you this morning that patience is a virtue, no one would be willing to disagree with me, at least not in word, maybe in action. 
But since we all already know that, let me emphasize something for you. Patience is a virtue to you when you, when someone else is waiting on you. That's when patience is really beautiful, right? When you're the cause of delay for someone else, you're like, come on, man, just be patient. Like patience is so good. It's good for you. Just be patient. But when you want something from someone else, patience is the most forgettable virtue in the world. We could just take or leave it. We don't really need it. We're waiting on someone else. Give me what you promise me when you promise it to me. And uh, we see impatience triumph. Now, uh, UC Berkeley, this is our final stat, and then I'll be done reading stats to you. Uh, UC Berkeley released a study that said there's four good reasons to develop patience. One, people who patient people have better mental health. Patient people have better friends. They, they make better friends and neighbors. Patience helps us achieve our goals, and patience is linked to good health. Now, this is what I could do, and it's it's all too easy. I could stand up here, and I could give you the merits of patience without ever appealing to the Bible. But that's not what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to preach a sermon at you. But um, what I want you to see is uh, we all acknowledge that patience is good, but there's underlying motives to patience, and there's underlying outcomes to patients that I think our cultural snapshot doesn't really get. And David, who we're going to study this morning, was likely not aware of this study from UC Berkeley. Yet, he was practicing patience. And so we want to know, well, why was he practicing patience? He wasn't aware of these benefits. He did not know about the Stanford marshmallow experiment. Uh, yet, he showed patience at a trying time in his life. But here's what we're up against. Impatience, impatience, which is a lack of patience, is the natural condition of the human heart. And the age we live in makes patience that much more difficult to cultivate. And so here's what I'm saying to you, is impatience is natural. If you don't do anything to develop yourself in the area of patience, impatience will be what you default to. And in our culture, there is nothing that will help you develop patience unless you're going out of your way to do it. Because if you are impatient by nature and you are living in our 21st century world, you can have whatever you want from Amazon for $9 brought to you the same day. You can have food prepared for you in a matter of minutes. Uh, you can meet people and go on speed dating. You can even diet in one weekend Everything can be delivered to you quickly, and nothing about that is trying to help you build patience. So there's no force in our culture that is trying to help you, trying to be on your side and develop patience for you. That's a gift from God that we're going to learn about this morning. And so if you're a note taker, here's the phrase. It's a definition I'm going to give you. We will circle back to it, and you're going to get really tired of hearing me say it, but you'll grow in patience probably. Um, And it's this, biblical patience, which is what we're going to be talking about, biblical patience is relying on God's timing and God's method to fulfill God's plan. So you rely on God's timing and God's method to fulfill God's plan. And if you substitute your uh, own timing, your own method, or your plan, then it's demonstrating a lack of trust in God's ability to provide for you. So that's where we're going, and I'm going to show you how we get there. And so this morning, we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 24, and I'm going to read it to you. I would encourage you to just listen. If it helps you to read along, it's page 246 on your pew Bible. Um, 
and uh, I'll pray for us real quick, and then I'm going to explain one more thing before I read. Father God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for those that you have drawn into your presence this morning. We uh, thank you for the band and the worship, uh, and we pray that we would continue in worship as we read and listen to your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our understanding and apply your wisdom to our hearts and minds. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So there will be one feature in your translation that uh, it's not just our Pew Bible translation, it's most English translations, but when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that means that they're writing that in for the, that's the Lord's proper name. It's Yahweh. That's what's appearing in the text when that happens. And then when you see it lowercase, that's just how they address uh, the king in their day. So when I read, I'm going to substitute the word Yahweh, which is God's name that he shows us in Exodus, uh, for the uppercase Lord. And when I say the word Lord, that's David addressing Saul the king. Does that make sense? Three of you think it makes sense. That's fine. <laughs> Chapter 24, starting in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where he was, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. It means what you think it means, by the way. Now David... And his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord Yahweh said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as you seem uh, good, as, as seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, Yahweh forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Yahweh is anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the uh, is Yahweh's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the King. Then Saul looked behind him and David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of these men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how Yahweh gave you into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May Yahweh judge between me and you. May Yahweh avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May Yahweh therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. 
He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when Yahweh put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may Yahweh reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by Yahweh, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks indeed. And so what we have, I'm going to break all that down for you, but this is a really weird story. And I want you to see why. And so we're going to recap a little bit. So if you've been in the Gospel Project, they've been going through First Samuel, uh, and you should be reading along, and you re- will have read these things. If not, I'm here to help you out. Uh, but in First Samuel chapter 16, David is anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Now, Israel already has a king. They have King Saul. But God turns on Saul and says, Saul's not serving me. He's not serving my people well. And David will be the next king. And from this moment on, 1 Samuel chapter 16, David knows that he is going to be king. However, his path to the throne is very unclear. He's out tending to the flock, acting as a shepherd, When this guy comes over and says, I'm looking for the next king of Israel, and his dad lines up all his sons except David, because he's like, well, David's not really a candidate for that. we just leave him out in the field. Comes in from the field, is anointed with oil, told he's going to be the next king of Israel, and then nothing. And then then he just goes back to shepherding for a little bit. And, And even his father didn't think of him as someone who could be the next king of Israel. But then, amazingly, next chapter, chapter 17... David kills Goliath. He takes on a giant. He slays the enemy of God's army. He rescues his people from what would have been captivity and slavery. He defeats the Philistine army single-handedly. And you start to think, okay, now he's anointed king. He defeats an army. Now he's king, right? That's not what happens in chapter 18. In fact, in chapter 19, Saul, King Saul, who David kind of did a big favor for, killing Goliath, Saul turns on David and out of paranoia that David will be king and his love of power in the throne, Saul tries to kill David. And so now David is running for his life and we pick up in chapter 24 where David is hiding in a cave to protect his own life. Now in chapter 16, he was told, you will be king of Israel. You know, once Saul's out of the way, you're going to be the next king And now he's hiding in a cave. Does that seem like God's plan is playing out the way that he was promised? No? No one? Yeah, so it, it doesn't seem to be going that great. And surely at this point, David is thinking to himself, how much longer do I have to wait for God's promise to be fulfilled? For God told me I was going to be the next king of Israel, and now I'm hiding in a cave where, by the way, Saul has come to relieve himself. And this is this is my life now. God promised I'd be king, and here I am, sitting in a cave where the king is coming to use a restroom. So this is not the life turn that he expected. And so only a deep trust in God's plan could keep him faithful. 
But that's exactly what we see. And so we see, remember, the definition of biblical patience is relying on God's timing, God's method to fulfill God's plan. So he's still believing in God's timing and God's uh, plan here. And he's not listening. He's neglecting the advice of those around him because the people around David are saying, look, you were told you were going to be king. You've got a sword and an evil King Saul sitting right in front of you. You All you got to do is just get him with the sword and now you're king. And David decides not to do it, which is an incredible act of self-restraint. It's an incredible act of patience. And we'll, we'll find out a little bit more what's underneath it. But if we think about this, if we think, you know, David's a predecessor for Jesus, we see that both of them patiently endure the path to the promised throne. And the path is winding and it's not direct and it's not uh, covered in glory like you would expect it to be. And both of these men are lifted up in scripture as worthy of our imitation. And so we see a little bit there, but now we see a little bit more because we're going to listen to what David has to say in David's reasoning. And so David trusts in God's plan, but he also trusts in God's timing. David refuses an opportunity to what many people would say is claim your own future. Now, this is very popular. If you want to learn about being an influencer in our culture, if you Google that and you watch some TED Talks, you will learn about hustle and hard work, and you will learn that you should seize every opportunity that comes your way, and you should look out for yourself first and foremost. That is what you will learn about being an influencer. If you go out in the world and seek wisdom about how to be an influencer, you go get yours, you claim what belongs to you, and there's even a version of that that has crept into the American church where they try to spiritualize that, and they say, name it and claim it. And that's the spiritualized version of the culture's message for self-promotion and prosperity. And if you were to find American culture's mindset in this passage, it would be David's friend's standing behind him saying, there it is. All you got to do is just murder the king and then you'll be king. And it's like an episode of Game of Thrones. And that's that's what we find worthy of imitation in our culture, but that is not what David sees. And so this passage is surprising because not only does David not, uh, David has the opportunity to take what God has already promised him and he is encouraged by those he trusts, those around him to do just that, to take it. It was already promised to you. You know it's God's plan, so just go ahead and get there a little faster than God was working on it. Right? It's a good plan. It's God's plan. He gave it to you, so you don't really need to trust in his timing or in his methods. You just go ahead and take it. But David says no. And David trusts in God's methods because killing God's anointed king in order to become king does not seem like the path that God would have him go down. Taking the throne by murder, which by the way, if you kill God's anointed so that you can become God's anointed, how do you expect to exit the, the post? Right? Once, cause Saul is the first king of Israel, and if you take it by sticking a sword through him while he's going to the bathroom, how do you think your career is gonna end as king? So he, he understands what's at play here, but he also understands that God has given us commandments not to murder. And God gives those commandments, he gives those laws for our benefit, for our instruction, so that we can live a good and godly life. And so David's patience and David's restraint are so powerful here that, and this is the key, they win over his enemy. In in this passage, he decides, I'm just going to cut a little bit of Saul's robe off. As soon as Saul's out of the cave, David comes out of the cave and says, Hey Saul, 
This is missing off of your robe. Did you notice? Because I was this close to you with a sword, and I decided not to take your life. Stop hunting me like I'm your enemy. If I was your enemy, this would be your head that I'm holding, not a piece of your robe. And so, and then we see in verse 20 here, exactly how Saul reacted. It's verse 16, my mistake. Uh, as soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, uh, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. See that? That's how patience can be an influencer. That's how patience can be a force of influence by not pursuing his own timeline, his own methods. David relies solely on the power of God and God breaks Saul's heart here. Now I should add that it's only a temporary one as Saul reverts back to his old behavior, but it goes from this, uh, in chapter 20, verse 31, Saul describes David this way. He said, he is a son of death who deserves to die. And in verse chapter 24, he says, now I see that you are fit to be king. So by not killing him, by exercising patience, by doing what in many people's approximation is the opposite of action, by sitting back and letting God do what God had planned to do, he goes from being called a son of death worthy to die to a man worthy to become king by his enemy, by his rival, by King Saul. And so... In, to, to wind down here, biblical patience, and this is a recap, is relying on God's timing and God's method to fulfill God's plan. That's not relying on God's timing, God's method to fulfill your plan. And it's not you using your method and your timing to fulfill God's plan. It's God's all the way through. And so, uh, any lack of patience here, and I'm gonna tell you a couple things that are gonna hurt because I'm impatient. But from the outside, there are two things that impatience gives the appearance of. And in fact, patience and impatience both reveal something deeper about what's going on inside of you. Impatience from the outside can look like entitlement. If you're impatient, it means I instantly deserve whatever it is I'm hoping for, whatever it is I want. And impatience can communicate that to other people, whereas the complete opposite of that patience shows gratitude. It shows I'm grateful for what has already been given to me, what's already been entrusted to me, and what God has promised me going forward. You see the difference there. So one of them shows that your heart is grateful at its core, and the other one shows that you're kind of entitled, you're needy, you feel like you deserve everything you want whenever you want it. And so patience and impatience are actually symptoms of deeper issues in the heart. And the second is this, impatience from the outside and at a deeper level, uh, can have the appearance of distrust. Now, you can think about this in terms of your spouse, your friend, your neighbor, whatever. But if we don't trust others to give us, uh, if we communicate impatience, we're saying, I don't trust you to give you, to give me what you said you would give me. I don't trust you. And that can wear on a relationship. If you're always impatient with someone else, what you're actually saying to them is, I don't trust you. I don't trust you to do what you said you would do for me. And so I'm going to do it for myself and I'm going to default back into self-service. And that's what impatience shows that in our heart of hearts, we distrust one another and impatience towards God shows that we distrust God. Whereas patience shows that our trust is not in our own ability, 
Our, pay, our, our trust is not in our own timing, in our own methods, or even in our own plan, but our trust when we are patient is in God, who is faithful and just and merciful and gracious. And as Christians, we have this proof, this irrefutable proof that God is trustworthy because God has sent his son sacrificially to die on the cross for our sins, separating any barrier between man and God, forgiving all of our injustices, all of our iniquities, all of the things that we have done to make ourselves enemies of God. He has taken those and nailed them to the cross. And when we are impatient with God, with God's plan, we show a lack of trust, even though God has demonstrated the ultimate reason for his trustworthiness and for why we should be willing to trust him. And so impatience shows a lack of trust in God's plan for us, even though we've been given all of the assurance that we could ever want or need and all the proof that God is for us and that he will care for us. Will you please join me in prayer?